0: If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode.
1: Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If Only in Theatres, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news?
0: add something electrica bring the swagger and an Italian icon is remixed and ready to drop with its available premium JBL audio system tap the banner to learn more Fiat is a registered trademark of FCA group marketing SPA used under license by FCA US LLC
1: this episode is brought to you by Reese's peanut butter cups In breaking news Leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's peanut butter cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you.
0: Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. From the glories of early medieval Northumbria to the urban powerhouses of the Industrial Revolution, the north of England has long had an identity of its own. In his book Northerners, Brian Groom traces the story of the North from the Ice Age to the present day. And he told me more about some of the key moments in the history of the region and how the North-South divide goes back further than you might think. Your book, Northerners, it looks at the story of the North of England from the Ice Age to the present day, so it's quite a big task. There have been hundreds, I think it's fair to say, maybe thousands of short histories of England as a whole but why did you think that the North needed its own history told independently?
1: Well, it, I, I started thinking about this about 10 years ago, and I was amazed to discover that there'd only ever been one general history of Northern England ever published, and that was in 1990. And it seemed like a, a gap and an opportunity. So I started working on it then, and it's—I mean, it's been a hu- hugely important region, lots of the most... Amazing events in English history have happened in the north of England. But it's extraordinary that it's so rarely been recorded in terms of a general history. You get books on bits of the north, on Yorkshire, on the Lake District, on Northumberland, on Newcastle, whatever. But no history for a generation of the north as a whole. Extraordinary.
0: Which I did I did find extraordinary when I read in your book. But I think that does take us on to a really important question to start off with. A lot of our listeners will be listening in from abroad So to help them out, particularly, how are you defining the North? Because also, it's probably quite up for debate within England itself, I'd say.
1: It's a hugely contentious issue. I mean, whenever you draw a line, a boundary on a map, you you create a controversy. And there's a lot of debate about where the North begins and ends. Partly because it's not been a single administrative unit since Anglo-Saxon times, since the Kingdom of Northumbria. that stretched from the Firth of Forth down to below the River Humber, halfway down England. So it's been, it is now still very contentious where the North is. But I'm I'm not accredited to issue passports, and I'm not setting up an administration, so I could afford to take a very liberal, inclusive view. So I treat the North as where the people who live in a place think they're in the North, not where somebody else thinks they are. And uh, a Northerner, to me, is simply somebody who thinks of themselves as a Northerner, whether they've been born in the region or not, because there's a huge diaspora around the world. There are lots of people who... Uh, born elsewhere who move into the region and lots who live here for a period and feel a close affinity with it and um, I'm open to them all
0: lovely stuff and just for people who are tuning in from outside of the UK what kind of areas are we talking here you mentioned some earlier Northumbria Yorkshire where else would you add in
1: Yes, the border with Scotland uh, was largely fixed in a treaty in 1237, barring a couple of small changes. So up up, at the top end, you've got um, places like Berwick and Carlisle close to the border. The sea down two sides, the area of contention is a very large grey area in the south, what you call the south of the north. And that can, various times, includes Cheshire, Staffordshire, uh, Derbyshire, North Nottinghamshire. I mean, to take an example... um, the county of Cheshire today, it counts by the government as for, and for statistical purposes as part of North West England. Um, back in Anglo-Saxon times, it was in Mercia, which is the Midlands Anglo-Saxon kingdom, not Northumbria, which is the Northern kingdom. People have drawn boundaries for one purpose or another over the centuries, and these have shifted around.
0: I guess as well, this is not just really about geographical boundaries, is it? It's about a cultural idea of what the North is and what the North means and what it means to be a Northerner. You say in your book that the North, for good or ill, has been characterised by stereotypes. Can you run us through a couple?
1: Uh, I can, actually. I, I, can I read you a little list? It's not actually from my <laughs> yes. book. It's from a book by a chap called Dave Russell. He, uh who listed um, um, what we've seen as uh, Northern characteristics as seen by Northerners against the same characteristics as seen by Southerners. And the Northern list read, Independent, blunt, straight-talking, hard-working, physically tough, competitive, practical and productive, careful with money, friendly and hospitable proud of roots and identity, meritocratic and egalitarian, knowledgeable, holding strong views, humorous and witty. Uh, but the, exactly the same characteristics from another perspective read, truculent, carrying chip on shoulder, rude, lacking social graces, hard-working, over-competitive, ungentlemanly, philistine, unpolished, albeit highly musical, uh, mean, homely, parochial, working class, prejudiced and biased, humorous if crude. Now, these are obviously two sides of the same coin. And there's some truth in stereotypes. And a lot of stereotypes are perpetuated by people from the North themselves. They can be quite comforting. But the North, I think, loses out by them a lot. They, it has been often so, you know, just, just hedged in by these preconceived ideas of what a Northerner is.
0: I mean, as a Northerner myself now living in the South, something I always kind of come up against is people asking me what I think about the North-South divide. And what I was really interested to read in your book was that these ideas of a North-South divide aren't anything new, are they? How far back can we trace them?
1: Well, I think it goes back uh, certainly as far as recorded history and possibly before the scholar Bede in the 7th century. um, I think he describes the River Humber nine times as the boundary between north and south. And Northumbrians were the people north of the River Humber, so the, the the consciousness of some kind of a divide has been there for a long time, and you find it coming from medieval times. In the book, I think I recount the uh, the first ever North of Watford joke. It's about the 13th century. It's not terribly funny, but it's, <laughs> these things go back. A, these things go back a long way.
0: Yeah, I guess we should say at this point as well that, of course. The North doesn't only have a relationship with the South of England. It's obviously got a northern border that it shares with Scotland. Can you tell us a bit about that relationship and uh, how significant it's been?
1: Yeah, and I've lived in Scotland for 10 years, so I've seen it from, from both sides. It was a important political boundary. One extraordinary thing I found in researching the book was that Scotland, what we now call Scotland, has never been conquered militarily from the South at any point. Uh, though the border has been fought over for more than half of the past two two millennia. <laughs> but neither the Romans nor a succession of English medieval kings managed to conquer Scotland for any length of time. There were big campaigns and incursions into it, but they, they never did. So it's, it's always had a, a sense of separateness. And it's a funny relationship. A lot of people from northern England feel a very close affinity with Scotland, There is a a viewpoint, probably a minority viewpoint, that would love Northern England and Scotland to be an independent nation, as it kind of was with the Kingdom of Northumbria back in nearly 2,000 years ago. But in my experience, the Scots tend not to see it the same way. Um, The Scots see a border (laughs) and they see an England below them. And England's an alien place and they don't always differentiate between different parts of England.
0: So let's dig into this long history that you look into in the book a bit. One thing we do need to talk about is is landscape and geography. So how has the north been shaped by the landscapes there?
1: Very much so by both geography and geology and the climate. Historians sometimes talk about a Jurassic divide in England by which they mean there's a there's a ridge of Jurassic limestone that stretches from Dorset in the southwest up to the Yorkshire coast in the on the east of the north. And this is an oversimplification, but broadly, north and west of that line, you get hills, higher mountains, higher ground, poorer soils, a lot of rain. And historically, it was suitable for pastoral farming, sheep, sometimes cattle, but the result was you got isolated farmsteads, small hamlets forming. Whereas south and east of that line, you tended to get arable land, richer farmland, crop-growing, larger villages forming. And the evidence is that from discoveries of pottery and things, for most of history, generally wealthier what seemed like a big disadvantage to the north were well, suddenly went into reverse during the industrial revolution and all the things that the factors that seemed to be holding it back economically uh, were suddenly advantages rivers to provide water power sources of coal sources of iron and chemicals rivers proximity to ports all that was be- it became an advantage for a couple of hundred years it's more balanced now, I think.
0: I do want to return to the Industrial Revolution in a bit. But before we do, could we speak about some earlier eras that were perhaps really formative in the North? You know, there's talk about a northern powerhouse, but what were some of the earlier echoes of this? What were some of the, the golden ages of power in the North?
1: Probably the the earliest example of, of certainly the North taking some control of its own destiny was in the 3rd century during the Roman Empire, when um, the Romans create, split Britain into two provinces, one called Britannia Inferior, stretched from Hadrian's Wall down to south of Lincoln, and one called Britannia Superior, covered southern England and Wales, so-called apparently because it was geographically closer to Rome, not because of any value judgment. And during that period, it was very turbulent in the Roman Empire. You got a succession of of soldier emperors seizing power, and they spent loads of money on the military and basically it became a military economy and the north was a military zone so it got quite a lot of money and that's the period when you saw york booming and expanding as the capital of britannia inferior so that was a that was an important period and then after that the um when the romans had gone um the anglo-saxons came in from what we call the anglo-saxons came in from germany uh, and the kingdom of northumbria was formed from the early 7th to the late 9th century and it was one of the most dominant kingdoms within England. A succession of kings exercised dominance over they they vied with Mercia for control of other kingdoms around and it was a and we got this huge cultural flowering, the Lindisfarne Gospels, Bede, uh, Alquin, some of the great libraries of the world. They were Northern Europe's leading intellectual and Christian centre for about a hundred years. So that was a terribly important period. Um there there hasn't been a period in which the north has been as dominant as that since then though in the industrial revolution which we come to most of the growth was coming from the north though it never became as wealthy as the south it didn't have the accumulated wealth it was economically dominant and some of its ideas spread around the world free trade for example was a huge theme during the early 19th century, came out of Manchester, essentially, and Lancashire, um, and became a very influential global force. Uh, since then, it's been downhill a bit, um, much less influential, much less local decision-making. England has become more centralised. But I'd say those three, three times, probably the Roman era, um, the, um, the Anglo-Saxon period, and the Industrial Revolution were the main ones.
0: I wonder if we could talk then a bit more about the Industrial Revolution. Um, So how did it shape the North, but also how did developments in the North shape the rest of the world?
1: It completely remade the North. Looking globally, it created the Industrial City, which became the norm around the world not that it was it might not have happened it could have happened elsewhere but it um, there's a lot of historical argument about why it all happened in britain but it did happen in the north because of some of the advantages i mentioned in manchester and liverpool particularly especially manchester you got this prototype this this tiny new type of city emerging based around the factory system which had never previously operated in on any scale and you, it started drawing people in so it got a new population coming in initially from surrounding counties, then primarily from Ireland, but also Scotland, Wales, the Midlands. And then as it became, particularly as the cotton industry became globally successful, it drew in merchants from all over Europe and the Middle East uh, and became quite a cosmopolitan place. The whole world was fascinated. This, this experiment in a new way of living and a new way of running the economy was, was happening in this previously rather obscure and damp part of the world, and the rest of the world were beating a path to its door.
0: I was going to ask you what you think had the biggest impact on the lives of ordinary people in the North. Would you say it was the Industrial Revolution?
1: I think so, yes. And it wasn't just the north. It was a hugely turbulent period for everybody. Everything was changing. It was a double-edged sword. The um, the cities were providing steady work that wasn't necessarily available in the countryside, but it was the conditions were harsh. In the early days, of the Industrial Revolution uh, conditions were absolutely dreadful, though they were pretty bad in the rural areas that people were leaving behind as well. So that had a huge impact on people. People's lives. And the the first half of the nineteenth century. It's hard to there's a lot of argument about, about what happened to real wages. People what lives and livelihoods were disrupted, and a lot of people didn't see the benefits until the second half of the nineteenth century. So you got you got a lot of revolt over this period. It was the time of Peter it was the time of the Luddites. People were th- thrown out of their previous livelihoods by factories they used to work at home and in little mills and things and uh, or on the land and they were and it, everything was changing quite dramatically so it was a it was a, a turbulent period and nobody at that time and we look at it with hindsight now we know that in the long term the industrial revolution has helped uh, to create unprecedented economic growth and productivity and allowed real living standards to rise for many, though it's created a lot of pollution as well. At the time, they didn't know any of these things. They didn't know where it was going to lead. They just knew that things were changing. It could have been led them to starvation or it could have led them to prosperity. They just didn't know.
0: This idea of turbulence and change is an interesting one because if we fast forward to the 20th century, we see turbulence and change again, as the North is deindustrialized. can you tell us a bit about that and the impact that it had on Northern communities?
1: Yes, and it, it's still going on. the um, The 20th century proved very difficult. The North's kind of economic peak, I pick out in the book, was about the, the year 1911, just on the eve of the First World War. Uh, and it accounted for more than a quarter of England's population and about a, a third of Britain's economic output. And that has shrunk since then. The seeds of decline were already there by that stage. It had dominated several industries, textiles, iron, steel, shipbuilding, coal, things like that. Other countries have been catching up it hadn't been innovating as fast as some of its global competitors and the region was not creating new industries to on any scale at that time so after the first world war uh, the 20th century in particular was was very tough the 20s were very hard in the north 30s also to some extent as well and the old industries some of them went into terminal decline. I mean, it took a while. The kind of, we we became a net importer of cotton textiles in the late 1950s for the first time since the industrial revolution started. And that's affected a lot of communities. Some of them have recovered quite well. Some of the big cities have recovered much better than many of us would have thought possible in the early 1980s. But there are still problems, particularly in some of the old mill towns, particularly uh, the former coal fields and seaside towns as well. So it's trying to revive these is still work in progress.
0: Something I wanted to talk to you about was. Politics has the North for a long time stood apart politically, or is that not as defined? Is it more muddied than we might imagine?
1: It's quite an interesting history. It is, it is distinctive. I think ever since the sort of wider franchise for men came in during the the, the latter stages of the nineteenth century, uh, the North as a whole voted predominantly liberal and then later Labour and was heavily involved in the creation of the Labour Party. Um, but Lancashire was always a, a quite an odd one out. It had a long tradition of working-class conservatism. There is quite a lot of debate about exactly why that happened. A good part of it was probably to do with hostility to Irish Catholic immigration Uh, That's certainly the case in Liverpool, which to the surprise of a lot of people was controlled by the Tory party from 1841 right until the 1970s. People forget that. You think of it as a very left wing city, Um, but it has this this quite distinctive history as for lancashire as a whole it may also have had to do with its kind of longer history of um insularity and isolationism it was it was uh, england's poorest county or one of the poorest counties throughout most of history until the Industrial Revolution, and then suddenly it leapt up to being the third wealthiest county. So it's a that was a dramatic change for Lancashire. But it has the North has typically voted differently from the South. Labour tended to dominate it for most of the past century, which is why some of the results in 2019, which it, were such a such a surprise, such a shock, and um, uh, who knows where it's going to go in future.
0: Something else that you look at in your book is the cultural and the artistic outlook, Output of the North, which I think it's fair to say has has shaped the cultural agenda of England as a whole in many ways. Can you tell us about some of the figures that really stand out for you?
1: It's it's pretty rich. Um, it's, it it tends to come in two categories. In the book, I describe it as either landscapes or larryscapes. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's, um, so the two big features of Northern history have been that mountainous landscape. Uh, and the creation of the industrial city. And that's been predominantly what we've seen. So um, the the landscape brought us the romantic poets, particularly Wordsworth. It was a kind of big, massive decision for a, a poet in the early 19th century to go to live in this, though he came from it, this wild and woolly region, the Lake District, because... Uh, before the Romantic era, it was regarded with fear and hostility, and people didn't, you know, wonder what the hell went on in these these mountainous places. So, to to start a, a whole cultural movement from there was a was a big moment in history. Uh, so that was important. And in and in art, perhaps I'll, I'll pick out Lowry, who who said that um, he aimed to to start portraying the industrial city because nobody ever had. And astonishingly, nobody had, you know, it hadn't been pictured in art much before Lowry. His art divides people uh, and has been hugely influential, but nobody's been more crucial to establishing what the world thinks an industrial city and a city in the Industrial Revolution looks like. Uh, Lowry is the person. It's been a, a, on the whole, a good and broad cultural journey. As we, you said, it's not because it's not been a political entity for hundreds of years. It tend, it, it exists in people's minds, so it's it's. Uh, how it's depicted by poets and comedians and writers and filmmakers has been hugely important to it. And they're a pretty varied bunch. And I think it's uh, i think it's something the North can be proud of. It's produced so many great writers and artists and uh, painters and things.
0: Something I wanted to ask you about was the harrying of the North, which many see as a defining moment in the, the region. Could you tell us a bit about that?
1: the harrying of the north is a name that's given to what happened under William the Conqueror, a particularly brutal, brutal king, who, um, after seizing control of England, most of the revolts and resistance to his early rule came from the north, and he suppressed them pretty cruelly, with what was known as the harrying of the north, which is basically destroying crops all over, mostly Yorkshire, but also bits of Durham, places around South Yorkshire particularly. And uh, according to the accounts of contemporary chroniclers that caused starvation and hardship across the north, and possibly up to 100,000 people starved to death and you got refugees arriving as far south as Worcestershire looking to, to, to find food. Now there is a lot of debate among historians about this. Um some suggests that these accounts were exaggerated, that, a, after all, a scorched earth policy was common in medieval warfare. What William was trying to do was to make sure that a, a future uh, army had no, no resources to live on um, and could be less of a threat. And a lot of it, is, it relies on the Doomsday Book, which describes various places uh, uh, as waste. And there's a debate about waste. what waste actually means. But I'm sure the debate will go on. But it does seem to me that that the evidence is that there was a big drop in population after that period so i think the the, it does point towards pretty significant level of devastation and it did become a folk memory in the north for centuries it it probably affected the northern economy for some people think hundreds of years i suspect probably only 100 200 years something like that but it still gets mentioned occasionally today, particularly in the 1980s when we saw so, deindustrialization was at its height. You, people use the phrase quite a bit.
0: So if we look back on these thousands of years, you've created a picture of hardship and turbulence, but also of triumph and wealth. Um, if we're to look back at all of this, where can we see its legacy today?
1: Well, the legacy is that it's got a model of itself to draw on. It's not something to be ashamed of or to be forgotten. Its past demonstrates that the North can take responsibility for its own affairs and can play a big role economically, politically and culturally uh, if it has the self-confidence. It comes back to the question of where the North is. One one fun thing to do in the book was uh, to examine all the intra-North rivalries. And um, one re- a lot of debate is, is there a broader Northern identity or is it a more local identity you've people think themselves from Yorkshire or from Merseyside or from from Tyneside primarily but probably too much of the last 50 years it, it the North has seemed like a supplicant and know it's a declining place looking for special treatment and favors. From the national government and some of that is true but its future has to be to an extent in its own hands it'll never you'll never see a revival without um, the energy and enterprise of northerners themselves being harnessed and harnessed taking responsibility for their own region I think
0: fantastic and finally if anybody is looking to visit the north and they want to uncover some of the history where would you advise them to go
1: Oh my god. <laughs> Sorry, huge <laughs> I tried question. I try to be I try to be, uh, be even handed in these discussions yes. of, of the north. It depends what, what, what you're looking at. And I've been doing events right across the north. That's been absolutely fascinating. I've I've learned a bit more about all the places I've I've been to and I have loved doing that. Um you, you can go to the Northeast where you'll find with some justification a, a sense that they are the most northerly of the north. You know, some people will tell you that Lancashire and Yorkshire are in the Midlands, but you get a slightly different feel from um, Manchester and Leeds. Manchester, you'll go, you'll find a very, very cosmopolitan, internationally focused city, as it always has been. It was in the early stages of the Industrial Revolution, as oddly it was in Roman times as well, because the soldiers came from all across the empire. Um, But then if you want to see um, beautiful countryside, you've got the Peak District, great history. Uh, You've got the Lake District. You've got Northumberland, County Durham, lots of fantastic places.
0: That was Brian Groom. His book, Northerners, a History, is on sale now, published by HarperCollins. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Sam Leal-Green.